Our second reading is Genesis 26, verses 1 to 33. It's on page 27 of the Red Pew Bibles and on your service sheets. Genesis 26, 1 to 33. Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, and Isaac went down to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I'll be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister, because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she's beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she's really your wife. Why did you say she's my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and he would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people. Anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold, because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us, you've become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and camped in the valley of Gerar, where he settled. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with those of Isaac and said, The water is ours! So he named the well Esek, because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also, so we named it Sitna. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. From there, he went up to Beersheba. That night, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahazath, his personal advisor, and Fickle, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked them, 
Why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? They answered, We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, There ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let's make a treaty with you that you will do us no harm, just as we did not harm you, but always treated you well and sent you away peacefully. And now you're blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they went away peacefully. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, we found water. He called it Sheba, and to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. Thank you for reading that, Royston. It's great to have it read uh, briskly and clearly and with uh, feeling. Almost makes the, the job of the preacher an easier thing to do. But let's pray anyway and ask for God's help as we turn to these words again. We just want to take our stand on that promise of the Lord Jesus with which we started this evening, Father. Um, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And we thirst for you, Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word now. We can't get satisfaction from the world around us. Um, We pray that you would lead us all afresh to Jesus Christ and that uh, rivers of living water would well up within us and flow from us to others. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, some of you will know that I've been away this week down in Wales on a, a camping trip, um, a school camping trip which has an early start to the day, about sort of 6.30, to be in the kitchen getting breakfast ready for the, the happy campers, and a late end to the day. And in the middle of my camp experience, one of the other teachers there said to me, um, so you um, preaching this Sunday, Simon? And I said, yes, I am. He said, and, and, and how long did it take you to prepare a sermon on the back of a week like this? I thought it was a, an evasive answer that was called for because I didn't know how long I would have. So I said, um, every sermon takes the same amount of time. It takes 58 years to prepare a sermon. In other words, the whole of life experience goes into every sermon. Um, so I spent 58 years preparing this sermon. I've had, it's been a week when I wasn't at my desk properly uh, until this morning. But I started thinking about this chapter actually about five or six days before going away. And it's been going around my head all week long um, as I went on that camp and tramped along behind the, the bronze Duke of Edinburgh group um, through the rocky sort of outcrops of the Gower Peninsula. Interestingly, in this chapter, um, I think it's fair to say we learn more about Isaac in, in one sense than we do in the rest of the account in Genesis about him. He's surprisingly passive in lots of the stuff that may be slightly more familiar, the sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah or the wheeling and dealing over birthrights where he's 
blind and not quite on top of things as Jacob the wheeler dealer comes in. We don't see much. He's pretty passive in those stories. Here, he's actually a little more proactive in his dealings with Abimelech and others there. So it's quite an interesting uh, light on him that you get from this chapter. I'm calling my headings, just for the sake of being clear, a frailty sandwich because Either side of this snapshot of Isaac, the believer, in his frailty, um, the bread that holds in place is two wonderful visions of God, the faithfulness of God either side, and then the frailty of the believer in the middle. That'll give you the bearings on the, uh, the, the thing as we, as we sort of sail at quite high level over the chapter as a whole. So we start with the faithfulness of God and that first vision that Isaac was privileged to have. Let me reread the start of the chapter. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. You'll find these little links between the storyline that Abraham had lived and experienced again in Isaac's life are here in this chapter. So the famine again, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. And here's the snapshot of the faithfulness of God. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instruction. So says God, you've no need to go to Egypt if in me you have a God who promises to bless you. The message is clear. Trust him, not the nations where you might run to for security, food, or whatever else. I've had uh, an interesting time in the last few weeks reading the oracles against the nations in Isaiah. I hadn't realized before quite how much of a big chunk of a big book is taken up with these oracles oracles against the different nations that uh, Isaiah was given. And it's a head-scratcher. Why are so many oracles given against the nations that Isaiah is to proclaim to Israel? What's the point of that? Is it so Israel can just rub their hands in glee? Presumably not. It's a message that says to them in Isaiah's day, don't make alliances with the nations because I am their Lord and they will not win by resisting me and you will not win by giving them your affection and your trust. It was a constant temptation for God's people to go to Egypt, as it were, or to go to Moab, or to go to Babylon, or somewhere else. And in Isaiah's case, they were saying these oracles against the nations repeatedly. Don't put your trust there. These nations are not my people, and if I am with you, you don't need to make alliances with others. Similarly here, don't go to Egypt says God to Isaac. Why go to Egypt when you can trust me? Don't make alliances with them. Don't love the world. It's passing away. There was an old dean of St. Paul's 
that said, he who marries the spirit of this age soon finds themselves a widower. Otherwise, if you make an alliance with the world, with Egypt or any other nation, as it were, well, the world's passing away. You'll be left high and dry by that alliance. But God will never let you down. God is faithful. The promises he'd made to Abraham would be fulfilled through Isaac. So as a little reminder in that vision, at a time of great need, that God is faithful, the faithfulness of God. Um, Alas, Isaac needed a rerun of that lesson because we move from the faithfulness of God to the frailty of the believer. When the men of that place, verse 7, asked Isaac about his wife, he said, she is my sister, because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca, because she is beautiful. He'd had these promises, and I suppose the promises made him more fearful in one sense. How is that promise going to be fulfilled? It might need me to give God a helping hand by this particular stratagem that he devised. So it's a snapshot of the frailty of the believer, the moral frailty here. And of course, if you're an alert Bible student, you'll know this is a carbon copy of what had happened to Abraham and Sarah. In fact, it happened twice in Abraham's life. Well, of course, the uh, Bible scholars have a field day with this. They say surely it was one episode which has got wound out into three separate uh, recountings of the same incident. Well, that's not necessarily so, is it? You think about the three denials of Peter. I suppose the account could have just mentioned one denial. But is it not helpful to us that actually there are three denials mentioned there? as a little reminder of the way uh, we are all natural-born sinners with a tendency to repeat sins, repeat them or reheat them, Um, repeating and reheating the sins of our fathers or our own sins. I love the honesty and candor of the Bible, that it recognizes that just because Abraham should have learned that lesson didn't mean that Isaac wouldn't fall in a similar way and gives us the full Watsonal portrait of the believer because, let's face it, that's you and me, if we're honest, is it not? So there's a moral frailty which is obvious there. Furthermore, the frailty of the believer is seen in other ways in that chapter, not just what our sinful nature exposes us to, but what life itself exposes Isaac to. Even, let's say it, the blessing of God. Get that bit where The blessing of God falls on Isaac after his uh, stratagem has been exposed by Abimelech. God blesses him nonetheless, despite his moral failure. And that puts him in a situation where his frailty is seen again in a slightly different way. He's given a hundred times as much um, crop as he had at the sowing point, and it's too much for the people around him. They're jealous and provoked by it, but God protects them and blesses them, even through the pagan Abimelech. So there are further problems in the chapter that are not to do with the moral frailty that we've seen 
in that earlier incident. He's too powerful. The wells they've dug, or Abraham's uh, generation of dug, get blocked up. New wells get fought over. Life is difficult, isn't it? The frailty of the believer is seen in all of that. And I think it's a little picture for us, not simply of the, the struggle that we have with our own sinful nature, but the circumstances of life will often uh, draw attention to our frailty and uh, the difficulties we have. But the resounding end of the chapter is to point us back to the faithfulness of God. Let me read on from verse 23, the second vision that's mentioned there. From there, he went up to Beersheba, which was a a well-known town throughout Old Testament history from this point onwards. That night, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Very similar content to that vision to what he'd had earlier on, is it not? Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. So there'd been a prohibition before, don't go to Egypt. Here there's another prohibition, isn't there? Do not be afraid. I think I'm told, somebody's had a lot of time, time enough to work this out, that 365 times in the Bible, that command, do not be afraid, occurs and uh, obviously works out as one for every day of the year. You know, there's an excellent Bible reading scheme called the Bible in one year. Well, you could have this as a Bible reading scheme if you wanted, where you read the Bible in 365 chunks and stop for the day. Each day when you get to one of the times, God says to you, don't be afraid. And you pick up at that point The next thing that scheme would take you through the Bible in a year. This is something we need to hear regularly. This is something God restates regularly. I don't think it's a special message only for Isaac, is it? This is a word for God to all of us. Somebody told me the first emotion recorded in the Bible is fear. They hear the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and They're afraid, they hide because they're naked. I didn't check out to see whether that's exactly right, but it's plausible, isn't it? It's a natural response to our human situation and our frailty. Um, But, says this passage, there is no need for fear if God is with you. And that's seen, actually, after this vision. By the way, the pagans, Abimelech and his men, part peacefully. There's a lovely conclusion that follows, verse 30. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they went away peacefully. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they dug. They said, we've found water. He called it Sheba, and to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. I like the sort of sense of timing that the narrative has for you there. That very day, as the enemies leave through one door, the servants come in through another and they have a well that's working. It's a sort of little point. It's sort of almost saying, 
it looked like coincidence, but it was too much coincidence to be coincidence. God has kept his promise, so they have this toehold in the land. Right down in the south, if you looked at it on a map, Beersheba. But they're in the land, they've got a well that works, and the pagans have backed off from them. A little reminder that God's promise is good. He is as good as his word. So I think that the message is very simple of the chapter, is it not? It's alongside the frailty of the believer, which of course we're all too familiar with in our own experience. Either side of it, again, is this repeated emphasis on the faithfulness of God, a God who can be trusted despite our frailty, our moral frailty, our frailty and weakness in the face of uh, life's ups and downs. It seems to me that that's a, a very important message for us. I am cautious of drawing lessons for my life from the Old Testament because um, uh, I'm going to tell you I'm wrong about this, but I, I had this sense that when we come to the Old Testament, we always want to say the answer is Jesus. That is the journey um, that the Old Testament is making. That's the direction of travel always, is to lead us to Christ. The promises to Abraham are surely fulfilled in Jesus. And therefore, the big message is God keeps his promises in that he sent Jesus into the world in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Of course that is right. But I'm sure that the details of the color of each individual story, like this story about Isaac, are meant to ring true with our experience. Why would God have given us the Bible in the way he has were we not to learn lessons from each individual believer and their distinctive colors that you have in Isaac's case or other people that we could mention? We are meant to learn moral lessons. In fact, the New Testament tells us so. They are examples for us to learn from. We who um, live in the fulfillments of the ages, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. So let the story do its work on you as it rings true to our experience. Where we feel frailty, this is saying, don't be afraid. Remember God's faithfulness. And I don't know where frailty would register with you as part of your experience. I'm thinking of Edward and Hannah off to Stevenage, a new place, a new church. Probably they will feel their frailty um, pretty soon in that, that situation. Hang on to the faithfulness of God in that situation. It might be moral frailty. They are human beings after all. We all have sinful natures we have to battle against. We have moral frailty to deal with. We have the frailty of living in a fallen world where things go wrong and wells get blocked up by enemies. And we need to hang on to the faithfulness of God in that situation. This is a message not just for Edward and Hannah, but for all of us, is it not? There's a story a well-known preacher used to tell. Actually, Hannah would like this because this was a preacher at a church she used to go to in, in Nottingham. He used to tell the story about um, a man who crossed the Mississippi on foot when it was frozen over. And halfway across, he lost confidence uh, that the ice would hold him. He began to panic. He finished crawling on his stomach. He was soaked and chilled as he crossed it. And then imagine his face, said Peter Lewis, the preacher, 
when almost immediately after making the shawl, he saw another man sitting on a large sledge loaded with iron, waving cheerily as he passed over completely safe. And the preacher said, well, it'd be like that for some Christians traveling from earth to heaven. We sometimes think, all I've got under me as I make that journey is the promise of God. All I've got under me is that? The promise of God? Well, we can be confident, can't we? Some people go through their whole pilgrimage, he said, worried, anxious, hardly daring to believe that God can cope with their failures and struggles. And they wonder if they'll ever make it. Others might press on with confidence and even joy. They might slip occasionally, but they pick themselves up and trust what God has promised. And we need to feast on the promises of God and bank on the faithfulness of God alongside our frailty. Another preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, said this, If God had meant to run back from any promise, he would surely have run back from the promise to give his only begotten son. But having fulfilled that, what promise is there that he will ever break? You get his logic? Jesus coming into the world was a a great promise and a great sacrifice for God to deliver on that promise. If God promises that and keeps it. What other promise that he makes to us could he possibly pull back from? I like the way this account in Genesis 26 has the place names in the account here. If they'd had maps to look at in Old Testament days, they could have looked and found Beersheba there in the south. And with this account before them, they would have known why it was called by that name. There's an interesting thing going on this uh, expedition uh, through the Gao Peninsula last week. On maps today, I noticed springs and burial grounds are frequently mentioned. And in Genesis, in the account there, it's always burial grounds and springs at this point in Genesis. So you've got the cave of Machpelah, where Abraham and his descendants were buried, And here we got the springs of Rehoboth and Beersheba. Those sort of place names are really interesting to the writer of the account. You can't survive without water, so you need wells. And when you don't survive, you're going to need a cave for burial. These sites are really interesting to him, but they are pointers to the faithfulness of God, a God who keeps his promises. God will keep his promises... And it'll do so more wonderfully than we can imagine. Who would have thought that the promises to Abraham and Isaac would lead one day to Jesus Christ? But they do, don't they? Abraham and Isaac are worried about the seed, the promise of a descendant that will be, how's it going to be fulfilled? I've got to give God a helping hand and try some sort of cunning planning to make sure my wife is protected so she can have this precious child that we've been promised. You hear the the cogs going like that. And God says, you're worried about a seed? I'm going to give you a galaxy of descendants. And the fulfillment is much more amazing than they could ever imagine, is it not? They're thinking about wells 
And we know that when Jesus Christ comes, these wells of the Old Testament will seem small beer, small Sorry, that's an unfortunate pun, isn't it? Um, They'll seem unimportant compared to that great promise of satisfaction and soul thirst being met that comes when the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost. There, I've got it in, okay? (laughs) But that's a wonderful fulfillment beyond what all of these people could have imagined. Yes, the wells were crucially important in that climate, But how much more significant to have our thirst met through Jesus Christ giving us his spirit in answer to coming to him with that soul thirst. We want God to deliver his promises quicker. But if he takes his time, it is because he plans to do something bigger and better than we've imagined. Even if from our vantage point, we can't work it out. But be sure of this, says Genesis. God is faithful. Well, let's trust him with that reassurance in mind as we go from here today. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that all your promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for blessing reaching to the ends of the earth through him the great descendant of Abraham. And we pray that you would bless us through the Lord Jesus, even tonight. Help us to trust him, help us not to fear, help us to persevere even in an upside-down, mixed-up world. Uh, You know our frailties, uh, you know our sins, Heavenly Father, but we want to rest on you and your faithfulness and on your great Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray you'd keep us clinging to him and knowing that he is holding on to us. In Jesus' name, amen.